Appreciate it. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. We want to look at verses 8 through 15. Eager to preach the gospel is what I've titled the message here this morning. Now let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts this morning. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Make the appropriate application to our lives as well. So we commit our time in the word to you. Ask your blessing upon it. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. On the overhead is an outline of the book, and we are still in the prologue. The first 17 verses constitute what we call the prologue, uh, the introduction to the book of Romans. The theme of the book is the gospel of God. And in the very first verse, Paul mentions the gospel of God, which he is set apart to as an apostle. Now, this sets the tone for what Paul really wants to talk about. Uh, for him, it was really all about the gospel. After introducing himself in relationship to the gospel, Paul then said, This gospel concerns God's Son, who is our Lord, and who he is was proven in the resurrection. Paul then emphasized that the goal of his apostleship was the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. There are two great truths brought out in the first five verses. There is the reality of the gospel involving who Jesus is as Lord God. And then there is the necessity of responding to this truth in what Paul terms the obedience of faith. People need to come to the knowledge of the truth, and they need to obediently, in their hearts, respond to it in faith. Then in verse 7, Paul gave his formal salutation of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up our study this morning. Paul now goes on in verses 8 through 15 to further introduce himself, his passion, his motives, and his reasons for wanting to visit Rome. Let's pick it up. Romans 1 verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul says first, but there's no second. So it is thought that the sense here is simply to begin with. Uh, the first thing Paul communicates to them is that he is thankful for them. You know, that's a good place to start, right? Yeah, that's a good place to start. I'm thankful for you. And Paul habitually does this in essentially all of his letters... The only exception is the letter of Galatians. And in that letter, he is stern in confronting them for not holding faithfully to the gospel. And the tone from the very outset is that of solemn concern. So Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Uh, God is his personal God. I thank my God. Uh, and this reality is in place through Jesus Christ. Everything about Christianity is personal. Uh, it's not enough to just uh, know about God. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, you've believed. It has to be personal. It's personal for Paul. I thank my God. Both his relationship with God and his prayer are through Jesus. The word through emphasizes the fact that Jesus is our mediator. He is our go-between. He is our means of connection with God. 
It's only through Jesus that we have any access whatsoever to God. Notice uh, just a few verses uh, to show this. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, through him, in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator. It's not Mary. It's not some priest. It's Jesus. There's one mediator between God and, and men, the man Christ Jesus. Point blank tells us who the one mediator is. The one go-between. The one means of access to God is through Jesus. And so Paul is praying in conjunction with that. I thank my God through Jesus Christ, by whom we have access to God. By the way, this is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a, a little tag on. Uh, we are acknowledging, if we are praying thoughtfully... Uh, that it's only through Jesus that we have access to God. And we are aligning our prayers with what Jesus would want, uh, with what's for His glory. So Paul gave thanks to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus means God's Savior. Christ means anointed one, in the sense of the special chosen one who fulfills God's promises. And note he is thankful for all the people of faith in Rome. Now, we will note later that not all the believers in Rome were thankful for him. But he was thankful for them. And I'm talking about Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where some were preaching uh, Christ out of envy that they might hurt Paul in some way. Uh, well, that doesn't seem that they were very thankful. But Paul says he's thankful for all the saints in Rome. As he speaks to them collectively, he is thankful that their testimony of faith has been spoken of throughout the whole world. By the whole world, it is, it is thought that Paul really is talking about the Roman Empire, the known world of his day. Now, wherever Paul goes, he hears about the Christians in Rome. He hears about their faith. And for this, he is thankful. William MacDonald says, Whenever possible, the apostle began his letters by expressing appreciation for whatever was commendable in his readers. And that's a good example for all of us. Paul consistently has a thankful heart as he focused on what God was doing in and through him and in and through the lives of all believers in the advancement of Christ's church throughout the world. Verse 9, For God, he says, is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. To show how serious Paul is in his prayer life for these believers, he calls God as a witness. Now, if you call God as a witness, you better be saying what's true. I mean, he's really kind of saying, may God hold me accountable if I'm not telling the truth. God knows what no one else knows. God knows the intensity of our prayer life. And Paul appeals to God as his witness that he is constantly in prayer for these believers in Rome. They are constantly on his prayer list. Paul describes himself as serving God with his spirit in the gospel of his son. We see here the passion of Paul. It's all about the gospel. A person's passion is what drives them. It's the motivating reality in their life. And people have all kinds of things that they might term as their passion. It might be physical fitness. It does profit a little. 
1 Timothy. Uh, politics, that's my passion. Uh, religion, go to church every day, even if it's not open. <laughs> uh, community service, leisure, sports, their job, money, education, food, fame, all kinds of passions. Who'd think a food channel would make it on the television? But for Paul, his passion was the gospel. The gospel. When Paul says he serves God with his spirit, the word serve in the New Testament is always used in the sense of religious service. It literally means to serve as a priest. You know, somebody that is given full time over to this. It is sometimes translated as worship, as we see in Philippians 3.3, for example. This is the same word used in Romans 12.1, where Paul calls on believers to sell out to God as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which he says is, quote, your spiritual service of worship, as so rendered in the New American Standard. For Paul, his whole life was about serving God in spiritual service of worship. And specifically, this passionate service was in relationship to the gospel. The gospel of God's Son. So Paul is telling us, when he does this with his spirit, he's really saying, I do this with my whole heart. Note the gospel of God in verse 1 and the gospel of his Son in verse 9 are interchangeable. The word gospel means good news. This is God's good news, and it's about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, consistently, the content of Paul's prayers for his readers was spiritually oriented. I'm sure he probably prayed for their physical well-being, but really the emphasis of Paul's prayer life was for their spiritual life. Paul continually prayed in relation to the gospel in particular. That people would get saved through the gospel. That they would grow in relationship to the the gospel, the, the knowledge and the truth of Jesus Christ. That God's people would be sharing the gospel. You know what we need more of? We need more prayer, but specifically we need more gospel praying. We are to pray about everything under the sun. But how much gospel praying really goes on? I mean, when's the last time you prayed for a specific opportunity to share the gospel or for others or that somebody would be receptive? You know, we need to have this on top of mind as far as sharing the gospel. I mean, it was for Paul. I really see this combination pretty consistently in Paul's writings. He says here, serve with my spirit in the gospel, always in my prayers. And we'll see where he goes with this at the end of our study this morning where he's thinking about coming to Rome and and what is he thinking about? He's thinking about sharing the gospel in that context. So Paul consistently links the gospel in praying. In his mind, I think they were very closely related. Verse 10, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. (laughs) That's an interesting verse, isn't it? It's interesting because it brings out the will of God. You know, people always want to know about the will of God. What's the will of God? Well, to start with, open your Bible. Uh, The revealed will of God is certainly there, right? You shall not kill. You don't have to wonder, oh, I'm mad enough to kill you. It's not the will of God to kill somebody. You shall not kill. 
We're not talking about war here now. We're talking about, you know, murder. Uh, Love your neighbor. You don't have to wonder. I wonder if I should love that neighbor. How about your enemies? Love your enemies. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's not many people you shouldn't love, right? Uh, I mean, you don't have to wonder about it. It's right there. Uh, how about uh, be kind to one another, forgiving? You don't have to wonder about it. Uh, abstain from sexual immorality. We don't have to wonder about it. It's right there in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, and on and on. All that God has told us to do or not to, is the will of God, the revealed will of God. But what about where he has not clearly told us? Paul indicates here that there is an unknown will of God that is not yet revealed. He wants to come and see these Roman Christians, but he wants it to line up with God's will. And so he asks in prayer accordingly. Now, if you have a desire for something, pray about it. Pray that if it's God's will, it will come about. But the key is always submitting to God's will, whatever that may be. And often we don't know for sure how God will lead or what his will is. Uh, we have this promise in 1 John chapter 5. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked him. If it lines up with God's will, he'll give it to you. He's a good and a gracious father. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts to you? God works through prayer. Repeatedly, we find Jesus emphasizing that God gives us spiritual fruit In answer to prayer, Jesus says, for example, a lot of places we could go here, but John 15, 16, you did not choose me, talking to the disciples, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is the purpose I have for you. I have chosen you to be fruitful and that your fruit should remain. This is enduring fruit. We're talking souls here. And then he says that whatever you ask, catch this, Bear fruit and asking go together. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Note Paul says here in our study, making request. We can ask, right? We can ask. You ask God for souls. You ask God for divine appointments. You ask God for opportunities to share the gospel. See what he'll do with that. Ask. Are we even asking? James says, you do not have because you do not ask. God wants us to ask. He wants us to recognize our dependence upon him. That's what asking is all about. Now, Paul's specific request is that I may find a way, which is the idea that God may so move that he will remove the difficulties and make it possible. Paul desires to come, but at the same time, he wants it to be according to God's will. Now, often we don't know God's secret will until we look back on how he has led. And then we are amazed at how differently he worked it all out than we had ever envisioned. Note, God did answer Paul's prayer to go to Rome. 
I mean, he did eventually get to Rome, right? Yes, we know Acts 21 through 28, that whole journey of getting there. But I want you to note, there was no instant answer. It involved delays, years of delays. And it didn't happen the way he might have expected. I mean, he ended up being a prisoner of the state and being escorted to Rome to face charges. I wonder if he's looking at the social... You're, you're an answer to my prayer. We're headed to Rome, aren't we? To see Caesar, no less. <laughs> and along the way, he faced false accusers, life-threatening situations, being physically abused, shipwrecked, snake bite, and a prolonged delay. Who wants to spend their life all kinds of court cases? Well, maybe God wants you to be a witness. Yes, God got him there, but not like expected... It didn't happen exactly according to how Paul was praying, I'm sure. God's ways are not our ways. We read about the trajectory involved, as I say, in Acts 21 through 28. And it was quite a process. Yes, answered prayer at the end of the day, but what a process. Now, Paul did not presume to impose his, his will on God, nor did he claim to know God's secret will. <clears throat> Rather, he simply made requests to God that was in submission to God's will, whatever that would involve. And this is key. In all our praying, we want to have the attitude that says to God, not my will, but your will be done. We are really praying to get God's will in heaven done on earth, not our will on earth done in heaven, right? We want to line up with his will. You see... Jesus is the Lord. He's the master who's always in front leading us. We're not in charge here. We're just his slaves, to use Paul's word. We're his servants. We carry out the master's directives. We're all about the master's wishes. That's why we're praying. We make our plans, but the outcome is in God's hands. We make our plans and pray, submitting to God's will. At least that's what we should be doing. We work it out in the course of life. God did not say no, so Paul kept praying. However, God did in effect say, wait, wait. His timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. You know, when we think about answered prayer, God answers prayer all the time, right? I mean, sometimes an answer is no. How do you like that for an answer? No. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's later, and sometimes it's a refined answer. Um, all kinds of requests that, okay, that was answered, but in this way, not like I was really thinking in this way. So note, as Paul went along, God did eventually plainly reveal that he was going to make it to Rome. This is later uh, where God reveals to him in the course of events here. In Acts 23, 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. He needs some cheering up, evidently. Uh, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You are going to Rome. You must bear witness for me. Be of good cheer. I'm going to get you there. And indeed he did. But at the point Paul is writing Romans, he did not yet know the certainty of God's will concerning going to Rome, although he had a passion to visit there. 
Now, sometimes people ask, if God is going to sovereignly accomplish his plans anyway, what's the point in praying? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if God is, he's got his plan, his sovereign plan, and he's going to work it out, and he is, he will build his church. Well, what's, why do we need to pray about it? It's a great question involving great mystery. My simple answer is, well, he said so. He said to do it. Okay, that's good enough for me. But on this score, there are two parallel truths brought out in Scripture. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. And he will accomplish his will and purpose. Number two, God works through prayer. And prayer changes things. Exactly how to harmonize these truths, I freely admit, is a mystery. This is consistently the case involving God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and we can leave the God side of things to God. You know what? It's safe with him. But on the human responsibility side of things, we are responsible. Let us be so, that is responsible, when it comes to the scriptural injunction to pray. God sovereignly works, but he often does so through prayer. And so he says, verse 11, For I long to see you. This, really, this word long is the idea of homesick, that kind of longing. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Here Paul begins to tell them of his motivation for wanting to come to Rome. You see, he wasn't, wasn't wanting to go to Rome just to see the sights and the sounds and the experience of it all. He wasn't coming as a tourist to see the, the famous Appian Way or the Colosseum. For Paul, it was all about people. It's all about the furthering of what God is doing, what Christ is doing in building his church. Paul intensely wanted to see them in view of his apostolic calling. Paul, after all, was uniquely the apostle to the Gentiles, as he terms it in Romans eleven thirteen. Rome, you understand, was the Gentile center of the known world. I mean, it was the Gentile hub of the entire world. So it makes total sense that Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, would want to make his apostolic mark in relationship to the saints in Rome, the very center of the Gentile world of which he was the apostle. Woodrow Kroll writes, knowing that this local church had not had the apostolic stamp of approval placed on it, Paul wishes to visit them to do so. You know, Rome's kind of out here. They, they haven't had an apostolic touch. The, the fingerprints of an apostle are not clearly upon them. Well, maybe in a secondary sense, but no apostle had even been there that we know of. So the idea here of imparting some spiritual gift was Paul's way of referring to imparting the blessing of his apostolic ministry. John MacArthur says, Paul was not speaking about the gifts he discusses in chapter 12 because those gifts are bestowed directly by the Spirit himself, not through a human instrument. He must therefore have been using the term spiritual gift in its broadest sense, referring to any kind of divinely empowered spiritual benefit he could bring to the Roman Christians by preaching, teaching, exhorting, comforting, praying, guiding, and discipling. So, 
it is left general because we don't, he didn't know exactly what their needs were until he would show up on the scene. But he wants to be used generally to further establish them in their faith. He wants to strengthen them. The church at Rome was famous, verse 8, but not firm, verse 11. Not as established as it, as it could be. So Paul wants to see them so that he might further strengthen them in the faith. But then Paul quickly qualifies uh, what he is saying, lest they misconstrue what he is saying as making it all about him. Like he is this apostolic big shot and that everything revolves around him. So to counter this, he says, verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. You see, Paul didn't see his ministry as just a one-way street. It wasn't merely that he would build them up, but that there would be a reciprocal ministry. Yes, he would encourage and strengthen them, but they would also do the same for him. And building each other up in the faith is a mutual thing. In giving, we receive. We know this verse quite well, right? We often quote it, iron sharpens iron. So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That's the concept here. And this attitude on Paul's part, I think, shows humility. He didn't make it all about him and his apostolic ministry. He didn't say, oh, you all listen up. You're all way under me. I'm an apostle way up here. No. Uh, He saw the value of the ministry of all the saints. Yes, his apostolic ministry that he'd been blessed with, that had a very important contribution. But so did all their ministries. Everyone in the body has a God-ordained role to play. Everybody matters. And that's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 4. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is what God intends. Everybody is to be involved. Everybody has a part to play. Now, you know, if I chop off a couple of fingers here, I can still function with this hand, right? It's going to be a little harder. And that's the way it is in the body of Christ. You know, we got just not everybody's functioning. Okay, we're getting along. We're limping along. But it's not the same as if everybody was doing their part. And this mutual encouragement and strengthening was based on the fact that they shared a mutual faith. Both Paul and the saints in Rome. All true fellowship starts with the reality of sharing a mutual faith. Peter in 2 Peter 1.1 calls this like precious faith. It's the same, like precious faith. New American Standard translates it as, quote, a faith as the same kind as ours. Everything builds on this. As believers, we share in the same reality of a saving faith. We all hold to the gospel of grace. And then we build on that. Jude 20 says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Wycliffe Bible Commentary. Even the Apostle Paul, who perhaps has never been equaled in in spiritual stature, says plainly that he needed the encouragement that comes from Christian fellowship. Thus, we dare not underestimate the importance of Christian fellowship for Christian growth. Amen. Verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. 
Paul wants them to realize that he has often hoped and planned to come to see them, but it hasn't worked out. It's not like he's been avoiding them. He hasn't been avoiding them. Now, Paul at this point had been an apostle for over 20 years. And it really kind of deserves some sort of explanation as to why he as the apostle to the Gentiles, although he had been involved in three extensive missionary journeys, reaching out to Gentiles, had never come to the center of the Gentile world, namely Rome. I mean, wouldn't you want to start there? Apostle Gentiles, I'm on my way to Rome. We're going to start there. This is the center of the Gentile world. I mean, after all, all roads did lead to Rome. But Paul had never been there, nor had any other apostle. How come? Well, here's his explanation. He had often planned to come, but had been hindered until now. Now, he doesn't specify what this hindering involved, but many think Romans 15 gives a hint that it has been because of his being preoccupied with ministry in other areas, in other Gentile regions. Notice what he says there. It gives us a little insight here. Romans 15, from Jerusalem roundabout to Elicrum, I have fully preached the gospel. And so I made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named. This is his goal. I'm going to go where, where nobody knows about Christ here. That wasn't true in Rome. There was a representation there. But he says, my, my goal has been to go where nobody's ever heard about Christ among the Gentiles. And he says, for this reason, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. There was more areas to reach where nobody in that whole area knew about Christ. And then there's this area. And then there's this area. And it, it got in the way of my getting to Rome. But then he says, verse 23, but now no longer having a place in these parts, having pretty much introduced Christ to all of these different areas, and having a great desire these many years to come to you. And by the way, he goes on to say, and by the way, I'm on my way to Spain where nobody's ever reached that area too, and you're kind of a stopping point in between there. So preaching in Gentile regions that were totally unreached was Paul's apostolic ministry priority. And this has hindered him up until now from coming to Rome. Now, sometimes Satan hinders, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Sometimes the Holy Spirit closes doors, prevents movement, Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. And sometimes the busyness of ministry gets in the way, which was the situation for Paul at this, up in his life up to this point. Note that hindrances by themselves are not a determinative factor concerning the ultimate will of God. They do not necessarily dictate that our motives are wrong. Perhaps it's just a timing issue, as was the case here. But God's timing is always perfect, and His ways are always higher and better than ours. For example, if Paul had earlier made it to Rome, it is very probable that he would not have written the book of Romans which has been a favorite of God's people ever since he wrote it. I'm glad he had to write this letter, which has been building up the saints ever since. And then Paul lists another motive in his desire to come to Rome, namely that he might have some fruit among them, just as he has had among other Gentiles. The context argues that the fruit he has in mind here is the fruit of converts, as seen in what he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15. So Paul lists three motives as to why he desires to come to Rome. Note on the overhead, 
Paul's motives uh, to establish the saints in Rome, wants to firm them up. 12, to be mutually encouraged. And then, verses 13 through 15, to have some gospel fruit. Now, Paul fully anticipates to have some fruit among them when he shows up. He was uh, very convinced that he's going to uh, see people come to the Lord, even has been the pattern in his Gentile ministry up to this point. Wherever he has gone, he basically has seen some fruit. God consistently blessed him with fruit. That is a harvest of souls. You see, the gospel works wherever it is shared. It is the power of God and the salvation of everyone who believes, as he will want to say, as we see in verse 16. Yes, consistently only a remnant respond in faith. And often it's a very small remnant. And yet the pattern is that wherever the gospel is shared, very consistently there is some fruit. The gospel works wherever it is shared. It's powerful. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now, when Paul says, just as among other Gentiles, this would indicate that the church in Rome was predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly Gentile in makeup in terms of background. Also, the large city of Rome was largely Gentile. You're talking about a city of over a million people, probably. Uh, Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, going to the center of the Gentile world to have was... His goal was to have some fruit there in terms of converts. Well, how did it work out? Well, he showed up as a prisoner, remember? And he says in Philippians, he's writing back to the Philippians now, and he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Imagine that! So it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he did have fruit. Showed up, probably not in the sense that maybe he had hoped, but here he is. The Lord's using him. And he says, verse 14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to unwise. Here we see into the heart of Paul and what fueled his zeal. He saw himself as a debtor to share the gospel with everyone, with special emphasis on the Gentiles in this verse. In uh, Acts 26, he's recounting his testimony, and Jesus says to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Catch that. Okay, you're going exclusively now, essentially, to the Gentiles. That's, that's where the bulk, of, that's where the emphasis of your ministry is going to be going forward. The Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I got the message. And declared first to those in Damascus, in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Now, when he says, he, I am a debtor, understand that a debtor is someone who owes a debt. Paul saw himself as owing it to the lost Gentiles to share the gospel with them. Paul saw it as a necessary obligation 
a solemn responsibility. Now, yes, building on verse 13, this, this had the Gentiles in view related to his unique apostolic calling, which set him apart for the gospel. But ultimately, his being a debtor had God behind it. It was Christ who arrested him on the road to Damascus and placed this gospel obligation upon him. I mean, he was called and charged with a special gospel calling that he was indebted to pay. As he went along, it especially had special application to the Gentiles, to the Jew as well as the Gentile, but he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and so that's the emphasis here. Notice how strongly he says to the uh, Gentiles at Corinth, the largely Gentile church at Corinth, for if I preach a gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. <laughs> say, Boy, Paul, you're really, you're really overachieving. No, no, no. No, this is my assignment. It's necessary. Necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach a gospel. Boy, I'm in a world of hurt. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. Now, when he says, I am a debtor uh, to the Greeks, as well as the barbarians, uh, Greeks here refers to Gentile, Greek-speaking people. And this was the major language of the Roman Empire. And sophisticated Romans put a lot of pride in their, their language. And they considered, you know, the Greek-speaking people to be uh, somewhat cultured and civilized. In contrast to the Gentile, uh, were the Gentile barbarians who did not speak Greek. You don't speak Greek, you're just a barbarian as far as uh, cultured Romans were concerned. I mean, their foreign speaking sounded like bar, bar, bar to them. So they called them barbarians. Uh, They were considered to be uncultured and uncivilized. I mean, they don't even speak the common language for crying out loud. They're barbarians. The wise were the educated or the learned Gentiles. And the unwise were the uneducated and the illiterate Gentiles. Now, these distinctions had nothing to do with intellect or IQ, but rather cultural differences among the Gentiles. And all these categories have the Gentiles in view. William Newell says he does not mention Jews because although full of longing toward them, he had been sent distinctly to Gentiles. In other words, Paul is saying that he saw himself as a debtor to every spectrum of Gentiles. They all needed to hear the gospel, and he was under obligation to reach them. Every sector of Gentile society, the cultured, the uncultured, the educated, the uneducated. It didn't matter. They all needed to hear the gospel. Everybody needs the Lord. All the Gentiles need the Lord. John Phillips says, here was Paul's burden. It made little difference to Paul whether the man was cultured or crude, an intellectual or an ignoramus. He would proclaim Christ with equal passion to a runaway slave like Onesimus or to a proud monarch like King Agrippa. Didn't matter. In the Jewish mind, there were were but Jews and pagans, Gentile pagans. I mean, you're either one of those two categories. In the Roman mind, there were Greek cultured people and barbarians. But in the mind of God, there are those who have the Son 
and those who do not have the Son. And those who have the Son have life. Now realize that Paul wrote these words of being a debtor after 20 years plus of missionary service. He didn't say, you know, I've been working hard for this for 20 years. I think I'm going to retire. My obligation is now paid off. No, 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 he didn't say that. He still saw himself as being under obligation according to his unique calling. Only in the last chapter, 2 Timothy 4, as martyrdom was clearly approaching, did he say, I have finished the course. Until then, as gospel believers, by way of application, we continue to be debtors to share the gospel. We are under obligation until the master calls us from the field. I mean, that's why you're here. That's why we're here. By the way, in the end, it cost Paul his life in paying this debt at Rome, as it were. The payment may be costly in terms of this life. But Paul told us this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The way of Christ is the way of the cross. He calls us to the way of the cross. There's a cross to bear in faithful service. We're not here to live for self, but to live for Christ. From the very beginning of Paul's calling, Christ said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Uh, Can you choose somebody else, please? Uh, I will show him how many things he must suffer, Acts 9.16. It wasn't easy to work at paying off this gospel debt. Isaac Watts wrote, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Paul's special mission was to reach all the Gentiles. And you know what? Paul has had, humanly speaking, a major hand in reaching almost every Gentile after his time that has ever been reached. I mean, where would we be without Paul's missionary journeys? Where would we be without the inspired letters that he wrote? Largely to Gentile churches and contexts. Where would we Gentiles be without his ministry? Where would the Gentile church have really even gotten off the ground? Now, of course, God is sovereign. But that is the point. God sovereignly used Paul to uniquely reach the Gentile world. And oh, how effective that ministry was in bearing fruit down through the entire church age. All to the glory of God. Let's make a little application here, shall we? Uh, Do you see yourself as under obligation to share the gospel? Or does this only apply to Paul? Say, thankful I'm not an apostle. I'm not under any obligation like that. Well, let's think a little more deeply about this. In truth, we as believers are all debtors. We are under orders to share the gospel. You see, the Great Commission, with all the authority of Christ behind it, is stated in all four Gospels as well as the book of Acts. Let's see if you can see yourself here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. You know, the the mission goes on. The apostles, they did a lot, and Paul did a lot. But the, the, the book of Acts kind of just ends abruptly because the story is not yet complete. But one of the key reasons that Christ has given 
you and me, the Holy Spirit, is to empower us to be his witnesses. You have the Holy Spirit? Why? Why do you have the Holy Spirit? Well, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are expected to be a witness for Christ. It's expected in Acts 1.8. You didn't say, maybe, maybe you'll be able... No, no, you shall be my witnesses. You have been empowered to do so. Now, let's suppose a person discovered a cure for cancer. And they knew it. Now, let me ask you a moral question. Would they be obligated to share that with others? Yes. Morally, we would say they would be. You see, there is such a thing as criminal neglect or criminal negligence. I mean, if you're in a position to help a person who's in harm's way and you don't do anything, you can be held accountable. I mean, if someone's in a serious accident and you happen on the scene, you are obligated to render aid to the best of your ability. If someone's house is on fire, you do what you can to get them out. If someone is drowning, you do what you can to save them. It's a basic moral obligation. What about the gospel? Do we sense any obligation? In reality, this is the most important obligation of all. Eternity is in the balance for people. There's an urgency. People have no greater need than to know Jesus. And this is where you and I come in. Oh, how often I fail. I'm sure we all could relate. But 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Now we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives. Yes, my friends, we might not realize it, but we are indeed debtors to share the gospel. If you know the truth, you are then responsible to share it. We are to pray for opportunities. We are to do everything in our power to get the gospel out, which involves a whole host of variables. Paul took this very personal, many places, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. There's there's an accountability before God for doing this. And so he says, verse 15, so as much as in So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Feel the fire in Paul's bones. This was his passion. Noted all the way through here in this first chapter. Separated to the gospel. Verse 1. Verse 5. For obedience to the faith. Verse 9. Serve with my spirit in the gospel. Verse 13. Have some fruit among you. Verse 14. I am a debtor. Verse 15. Ready to preach the gospel. Paul, what's your point? Isn't it obvious? Paul, in the fervor of his spirit, with all that is in him, was ready to preach the gospel in Rome. Also. It wasn't a new thing. He said, when I get to Rome, I'm going to take on, you know, I'm going to make a new commitment to start sharing the gospel. No, he'd been doing that all along. He knew what he was going to do if he ever got to Rome. He wasn't thinking about seeing the sights. It wasn't even on his radar. It was all gospel all the time for Paul. This is all that mattered. 
You know, the older I get, the more aware I am that my time is short, and there's an urgency. The word ready has a sense of eager. As a debtor to the Gentiles, he was not only able and willing, but eager to share the gospel in Rome. An old country preacher was asked how he prepared to preach. And he said, I read myself full, think myself clear, pray myself hot, and then I let myself go. That was Paul. He was ready to let himself go at Rome. And the thing about someone on fire to share the gospel is it tends to be contagious. You know, when Paul finally got to Rome and started sharing the gospel in chains, as it were, Paul said it served to strengthen the brethren to be more bold to speak the word without fear. You see somebody else being bold and sharing, it emboldens you. Indeed, God did use him to strengthen the brethren, even if it was in the form of of weakness in chains. Now, when Paul reached uh, preached in Jerusalem, the religious center of the world, when he preached in Jerusalem, the religious center of the world, he got mobbed. When he preached in Athens, the intellectual center of the world, he was mocked. And when he got the chance to preach in Rome, the political center of the world, he was martyred. Mobbed, mocked, and martyred. But there was no reluctance. He was ready with everything in him. You say, well, I think I better hold back a little. You know, I'm causing a little too many waves out here. You know, the idea is to get along with everybody. Uh, No, and we want to get along. Uh, We are peaceable people. Uh, But we also, above all, are committed to the truth of the gospel. Paul's burden, he was a debtor. Paul's boldness, I am ready. You say, well, I'm glad none of this applies to me. But it does. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Peter's writing to the saints. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Make sure God has His rightful place in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, around here we talk a lot about live ready. Which is a good motto to live by. And for us as Christians... This has special application to always being ready to share the gospel. As we study Paul's introductory words in Romans, we see in his bones a fire for sharing the gospel. May that challenge us. May the importance of sharing the gospel grip us. Take it from Romans, from Paul. Now, most of us, if we have any maturity in the faith, know about the Great Commission. We know the Spirit has come to empower us to be Christ's witnesses. And yet the professing church as a whole is a dismal failure in this regard. One report says surveys indicate that only 8% of pastors make evangelism a priority in their life and ministry. And that 95% of those who name the name of Christ never share their faith. 95% of us. Maybe not us. Hopefully, we're an exception, right? (laughs) Hopefully. But let me ask you, when is the last time you shared your faith? I know we'll get a little personal here. That's the point. When's the last time you even prayed about sharing your faith? I mean, do you even see it as an obligation to do so? It should be our passion. A couple quotes from Spurgeon. Love Spurgeon. 
It is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And then he says, another convicting statement. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then, then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Wow. When I was in Bible college, we had a professor by the name of Abe Penner. And he was a real soul winner. And regularly he would start his class out by having us sing. There might have been a few of you who were there. Give me a passion for souls, dear Lord. And it starts this way. Give me a passion for souls, dear Lord. A passion to save the lost. All that thy love were by all adored and welcomed at any cost. Jesus, I long, I long to be winning. Men who are lost and constantly sinning. Oh, may this hour be one of beginning the story of pardon to tell. As a fitting conclusion to the message today from Romans 1, let me put a challenge before you from another professor we had in Bible college. Dr. Harold Berry, who, by the way, happened to marry Janie and I. He did lots of good things, but that is really right right at the top. (laughs) But I love Harold. I got an email from him. Almost every Sunday morning, Harold emails me and says, I'm praying for you today. Harold is now 89 years old. And a few months ago, he wrote to some of us. A lot of us are praying for him, too, and and he's got a list. But anyway, he wrote to us. He says, I had modem problems. I called an agent in the morning about it and concluded by giving him my 30-second testimony. He thought I probably needed a new modem. Uh, It didn't seem to be working at all, so I called another agent. He definitely said I needed a new uh, upgrade on my modem. I concluded by giving him my 30-second testimony. He ordered the modem from a store. I went to the store to get the modem. On arriving back home, I couldn't get the new modem connected, so I talked to another agent. He was able to help me, and I finished finished with him with my 30-second testimony. Did the Lord know that there were three agents who especially needed to hear my testimony? And then Harold explained his 30-second testimony. Let me put it up for you here. I tell a person, let me tell you about my wife who passed away almost four years ago. And then I say, we both had trusted Jesus Christ as Savior when we were young. We met in Bible college after she was a registered nurse. We were married 65 years, telling others about Jesus and how to get ready for eternity. When it was her time to pass away, she was a complete peace about meeting Jesus face to face. I hope it will be the same for you when your time comes. Someday we'll all meet Jesus face to face, either as our Savior or as our judge. And then Harold said this, I encourage believers to compose and memorize a short testimony about the difference Jesus has made in your life. Then you never have to wonder what to say when you meet a stranger. Be ready always to share the gospel. May our faith be spoken of throughout the whole world. God help us to that end. And if you're here without Christ, I've been preaching to the saints to be ready to share the gospel this morning. Wouldn't it be terrible if I didn't share the gospel at the end of this message? I want you to know the gospel is all about who Jesus is and what he has done so that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. He is the Lord of glory who came to earth as a man. He's the God-man, fully God and man in one person. And he came on a rescue mission. To pay the penalty for our sin. He died for all of our sins. He made the full payment. The the completed sacrifice. The once for all offering. 
He died for all of our sins. That's called grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. Jesus did it all. All we do is say, thank you. We believe in him. He died for our sins, and then he rose again the third day as Lord over all. God's word promises eternal life to all who will believe on Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. Let me ask you, have you done that? The Bible says, now, now, now is the accepted time. Eternity's in the balance. We don't know when we're going out. Now is the accepted time. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.